Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. Judy. <laughs> I want to know what you thought. I don't care about Judy Garland. Go. Um, well, okay. So, um, <laughs> you love Judy Garland. You, you, I mean, this is the first time you've got to cinema before I have in a long time because you. That was like, to see you, and then you dumped me. Kind of, you know. I thought I might as well have kind of come at my usual time. <laughs> Did you come there to to see me before the? Film? Yes. Why do you think I was going to be there that early? Because you always are. Okay. So I thought you know this time I go well, and socialize. Yeah, but, but it's because it was Judy. You no, were. actually no, because uh, I've I've not. I mean, so. I, a couple of things, really. I, I really don't like Renee Zellweger. So, uh, and, you know, just to say that actually she surprised me. I thought she was great. So, you know, there was one prejudice, you know, that went out the window, really. I don't like these um, these biographical films either. Uh, so that point of view has been reinforced by this film. Uh I do, it's not so much, I'm, I don't have a fan personality. I've never written anyone or waited backstage for anyone. Mm. But it is true that, you know, Judy Garland is a feature of my childhood. So, um, you know, as a family uh, in the 70s, you know, in Canada, her films would be on television all the time. And we loved them, you know, kind of my sisters and I, you know, we all kind of love Judy. Um you know, Easter Parade and The Wizard of Oz and Me and My Gal and uh, uh, The Pirates and um, The Harvey Girls. You know, I love them all. And I remember kind of, you know, just being like 11 or something. And uh, A Star is Born, it was the, the, the television premiere of A Star is Born or the network premiere or something. And it was in a channel that we didn't have, you know, right. because our reception only got three of the four channels that were available. So I remember going to my friend Louis' house, you know, kind of panting with excitement. <laughs> and then I think his his mother wouldn't start the show until they finished dinner. So it was like, hurry up! <laughs> she wouldn't turn the TV on until they finished dinner. So anyway, so, so um, you know, she's definitely someone whom I've loved all my life, yeah? And, you know, as I've gotten older, obviously you understand kind of different things about her. I remember, you know, buying the Gerald Frank Frank biography of hers that came out in the 70s. And, you know, and then obviously kind of, you know, when you uh, realize you're gay and so on, then kind of the persona and the life and the songs, you know, all have uh, a, a, a particular meaning, right? So, so anyway, she definitely occupies that place in my consciousness, uh, you know, but I, but I still wouldn't say, like, I'm not one of these desperate fans or anything. Um, though that, <coughs> that sounds like I've got something about fans and I don't, I just don't have that kind of mentality. I'm not going to wait for anyone. Right. Um, so, so, and which also means that I won't. I won't go to everything that they do or I won't buy all the albums or whatever. But I do think that as a film actress and performer, she's peerless. Uh, there's a famous story that's in one of the Garson Kanin books where, you know, L.B. Mayer, who features in the film, is taking some important dignitary around, 
you know, and he asked Garson Kanan, you know, who do you think uh, uh, are the, you know, the best actor and the best actress in the MGM lot? And he says, Spencer Tracy and Judy Garland. And Albie Mayer flips his wig, right? Because, you know, the correct answer was Spencer Tracy and Garbo, right? Mm. Kind of, you know, she's a musical performer. She doesn't do tragedy, What you know, but it's... Yeah, but of course, I actually do think that she is, you know, kind of... Uh, she makes everything believable. Uh, you know, from putting on a show with Mickey to, like, these kind of plaintive songs about always being left out that are a feature of her early career, like, you know, in between or, or things like that. Uh, and, you know, nobody's had to play cornier dialogue than she and Mickey Rooney, and they do sell it. Yeah, kind of, you believe in in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that takes great skill. So, uh, and I suppose, kind of, musically, uh, again, she's got her ups and downs. I mean, I love the 30s and 40s recording particularly the big band 40s recording, because, you know, she is a great singer, and that means that often she can just harmonize under someone else, or she can just be, like, part of the band, right? So we tend to think of her in these grand show-stopping numbers that come at the end of her career when, you know, she's a concert performer, right? And tend to forget kind of everything else in between. So we tend to remember her at that point where her voice, yeah, I think her musicianship never left her, but her voice did, right? And the vibrato and the voice kept increasing and increasing. So uh, anyway, all of this to say that I love her, you know, so, uh, and I had not really been looking forward to the film. What? Uh, no, it's like I mean... you have to talk about for two weeks. No, I was saying we have to see it, and you know, and you've been saying it with a glee, or is that glee because you thought I would hate it? No, not at all. It's just really because um, you know, kind of. Uh, um, I think a lot of friends were asking about you know when are we going to do a podcast on Judy, right? Yeah, because, yeah, sure, you know, right. I love you, musicals. You, when, whenever we've seen a trailer for it over the last few weeks, you've been going, "Oh, we must see this." Well, it's true, you know. So. But I was also kind of dreading it, really, because I, I really don't rate uh, Renée Zellweger. She's got kind of, you know, a kind of a, a smirk. Like, she does these these things with her mouth where she purses it, and she's got tiny little eyes, you know, and she's very mannered, right? So I couldn't imagine her as, as being like Judy Garland, because the thing about Judy Garland on screen is that she's completely transparent, you know, like kind of... You know exactly what she's what she's feeling, and actually, I think the magic around her is that she's both transparent and theatrical. Yeah, so mm. kind of you know she's creating effects with her voice or her gestures or her eye movements, and you know that she's creating them. And at the same time, it feels like writing character. You know, uh, so uh, so how uh, did you find Zellweger in this then? Well, actually, I thought she was great. I thought she was fantastic. Um, you know, and my familiarity with Judy Garland of of this era is actually as the kind of the parodies of her. Mm. You know, like the kind of the, the wobbly voice and the kind of theatrical gestures and things. I remember, I don't know her at all as actually what she was like at this age. So uh-huh. so in the performance that Renee Zellweger gave, I kind of I I saw it as an impression, I suppose, but because I didn't have the real thing in my head to compare mm. it with, it, it seemed extremely convincing and all that sort of thing. And and so I kind of I, I ignored 
you know, what kind of, what other people might have picked up on, I don't know. Mm. Didn't occur to me to sort of say, oh, this maybe isn't very realistic. I just took it as a kind of brand new character, really. Mm. How about you? Well, uh, I mean, I had seen the show. So the film is based on a show called End of the Rainbow, which uh, was in London, and then it toured, and it came here to Birmingham with Tracy Bennett. And it wasn't a very good play, but it did offer this role. And Tracy Bennett is one of those, like, theatrical, you know, powerhouses, really. You know, she had the voice, and, and there's something about seeing it live with those songs you know, that just kind of pierce you, really. They work. They're theatrical songs, really. Uh, and and if you have a big voice or a voice that you can make big, you know, it's a show that works in spite of not being a very good show. Um, so I kind of... Um, yeah, I, you go in with a, with a series of knowledges and expectations, and, and within that, I actually think it's a terrible film. Really? Yes, I do. I think the opening sequence with uh, uh, L.B. Mayer, yeah, yeah, I thought, you know, it was so badly done, so badly directed, so badly acted. Uh, it's, a, it's a very threatening scene on the set of um, Wizard of Oz where he's telling her, I can't exactly what he's telling her, but there is there is definitely an air of sexual threat about it. And it's about, she's, she's saying, I'm tired, I haven't had sleep, I want to leave, I can't do this, that and the other. All the stuff that you know about Judy Garland, mm. the way she was treated by the studio. Um, and he's saying, you know, if you want to leave, the leave, but you'll just be a housewife. Yeah. And he, and he, he, um, he kind of, a gaslight isn't the right word, but he kind of mentally abuses her into sort of, you know, he says, well, your nose is wrong and your teeth are wrong. But your voice—it's yes. your voice—and so like it's—it's very—it's extremely cruel. There's nothing sympathetic to Luby Mayer in this. Anthem. I know, and um, not that I'm necessarily arguing that there should be, but he's a bit of a caricature. Yeah, he is. Um, he is, and I think they—they they use it as a structuring device in the film, and that was a mistake. I mean, it could have been a flashback, right? Like you know, all you need all those scenes for is to say. You know, this is a child who was abused, yeah, mm-hmm. and you know it was she, uh, she was abused by adults giving her drugs so that she could work harder and making her reliant on them and starving her and you know uh, all of those things that uh, led her to you know being um, dependent on on drugs and alcohol, right? So, um, but you you could have done that in like. 30 seconds in, a, in in some flashback. You didn't need to keep returning to it all the time. I don't think yeah. that... I, I didn't mind them coming back, to be fair. Well, the, thing, the thing that interested me more about those flashbacks was um, the way in which her life as a teenager was completely fake. So she has this birthday party, but it's not a real birthday party. It's for sure she's not allowed to eat the cake. Mm. Everyone there is an actor. It's just for the cameras. And when she dives into the pool, mm. in contravention of every... You know, she's had her hair done. She can't get it wet. And mm. she decides, no, I'm going to dive into the pool and try and have some fun. The shot, I think, is really interesting where it, it's revealed that this pool is a tank. And you see it from the side on. So it's like a stage tank. Mm. And you've got these lights and scaffolds. And so on the top, what you've been introduced to as a birthday party on some balcony in sort of LA is revealed to be a set like anything else mm. but she's in the middle of it kind of having a moment of joy isolated from everything in the water I thought that was a wonderful shot mm. um, that was more, what was more interesting about those those parts more so than the thing about her um, being on drugs being forced to be on drugs 
Though, I mean, that's completely unavoidable as well. Mm. And that, I suppose, is the longer-lasting effect that you see, because what you see of her as a 47-year-old woman is her t- dependence on drugs still mm. and her inability to sleep and and a kind of ongoing sort of problem with food and things. I mean, right at the end when they're enjoying that cake, it takes yes. her a while to enjoy that cake. Yes. You know? um, yeah, so, you know... Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think basically as a drama, what is it? On the one hand, you know, it's about someone who's desperate to be a good mother and can't be, and who's got a central dilemma as it's posited at the beginning, you know, that basically in order to provide a home for her kids, she's got to leave her kids. Mm-hmm. But then not, not much is done with that. The other thing is about a performer who's a real performer who feeds off the audience who the audience provides her with something that people don't. Um, so you also get a sense of how she's used by everyone, I suppose. Uh, and also you get a sense of how she's got a special connection with a gay audience of that time. Uh, I think none of that is is uh, depicted with any complexity or... Um, I suppose to say that there's no skill would be wrong, but with no flair, yeah? So, you know, I think for me, it doesn't work kind of um, theatrically uh, or, or, or dramatically. It's, it's perfunctory. So it's not that it... I don't know. know that there's no flair. I mean, one of those, one of the stage numbers that she does is the first one. I can't remember what the song is, but it's all done in a single take. Mm. Um and I think it is really beautifully orchestrated and directed. The camera's kind of close up on her face, moves around to the side, moves back out, and then it pulls out completely. And you see that, and and you get this. It's like a three, three and a half minute performance in mm. its entirety that starts off close up and ends up pulled out with the band coming in and you know, kind of turns into a big number, mm. which I thought was pretty extraordinary. I thought, it was, okay, you know, well, which I, I loved. Um, okay, the one thing that I didn't like about the stage performances, most of them is that they are so clearly studio recorded, the, yes. the audio. It really doesn't quite fit until you get to somewhere over the rainbow at the end, which to me sounds much more like it was recorded live. Yes. Um, and that's when she's, you know, kind of... I think I think that's when Renee Zellweger's performance is at its best. Mm. And she kind of, like, goes through the looking glass and kind of um, really accesses, like, a real sort of emotional... Um, Kind of, kind of. I mean, I think there's heart throughout the film. I think, I think you're right to say that it's not terribly complex. Um, there are some pretty cliche things, though. That's not to say they're not enjoyable. But, yeah. um, but I think what it does have is a real emotional openness throughout. I think you feel the film throughout. I think, I think that comes from her, from Brenna Zellweger, actually. And I agree with you that uh, the Somewhere Over the Rainbow number is a terrific. Uh, um, performance uh, of it uh, and it works incredibly well and I think you know it's the one where which which most deviates from Garland's phrasing or tonality or yeah mm. uh, so and and Renée Zellweger makes it very very affecting it's, it's really touching what she does with it the rest of the numbers for me it's like they're like a problem because this could just be me you know, but the other day I was watching What's My Line. Yeah, you know, it's that show where performers who used to go to New York, 
like uh, everybody's blindfolded, blindfolded, and they write their name on a board, and the panelists have to guess who the person is oh, right, by yeah. asking questions, right? And of course, the thing about Garland is she had to use a bell because, of course, as soon as she opened her mouth, she would be instantly recognized, <laughs> right? Kind of the most. Yeah, she's one of those performers like Sinatra or something. You hear and yeah, yeah, the you know all of America would know who they are. So, um, so for me, the singing in this film, the fact that it's not her, you know, and that it's not somebody like with a similar equivalence that is as you know uh, that has as good a music musicianship uh, as Garland does. I just find it's a problem because Renée Zellweger's voice is just really so far, you know, beneath what Garland's is that for me it represents a problem. It's almost like kind of, a, a, you know, an, a depth of emotion or a facet of emotion, you know, that's not there. And that only is superseded or surmounted when, 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 when she does, you know, the signature song, which is Over the Rainbow, but which doesn't follow you know, any of the various Garland performances of it, you know, this kind of the sweet, pure, bell-like tone of the movie or kind of later, deeper, throatier versions that are much more dramatic and, you know, but also have, a, you know, much more vibrato in, in, in the voice. She makes it her own and, and, and thus makes it kind of, uh, you know, the most successful of those numbers. Uh, I'm just looking up whether um, whether I'm right in that they they were studio recorded, um, and I'm not sure that I am. Let me just I'm on a, I'm on a Vanity Fair article. Yeah, here we go. Um, so this is a Vanity Fair article called Renee Zellweger on playing Judy Garland. If I could have run away, I would have. Um, and she says, it says here each of Zellweger's six musical numbers, including By Myself, which is the first song I think, and Over mm. the Rainbow was performed live on set in front of an audience to the sound of a band playing in her earpiece while the cameras rolled in one take. Um, so, yes. so I was wrong. But they sound really separate to what she's actually... to the visuals. Yeah, it do. doesn't connect. There's something about, yeah. you know, the limitations of the voice that just kind of... It doesn't... just sounded like the production to me. It sounded 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 separate, but... Um, yeah. You, know, um, you may be right about the voice, but... I think I think the one the one where it really comes together is somewhere over the rainbow, and also when she's singing in the flat um, with uh, I think it's the Andy Nyman character, that uh, one of the gay couple. Yes. Um, on the piano, she's singing. Um, come on, be happy. Is that it? Yes. Get happy. Hallelujah. Get happy. Come on, get happy. Yeah, that's it. That yeah. was lovely. I, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, very curious to what to find out what you thought of the the encounter with the gay couple and then they're coming back at the end. I mean, again, you know, it felt obviously like historically accurate. She represented, she was one of the icons of the period for gay men. You know, gay audiences had a very special connection to her, partly because she kept floundering, like, like you know, for the obvious reasons, right? Kind of, uh, you know, uh, 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 so, you know, this thing of, of being put down and getting up again and kind of and being blocked and getting up again and, you know, being denied and yeah, kind of continuing is something that resonated, you know, with a gay audience. And in fact, I suppose it's worth, uh, you know, repeating or underlining here, you know, that her death uh, is one of the things that sparked the gay riots at Stonewall and began the whole gay liberation 
movement. So you know, is that right? That's right. I didn't know that. Yes, you know. So in in how so? Well, because you know there was that that rage of you know they killed poor Judy. They're not going to do it to us, and they fought back, (laughs) right? (laughs) So uh, no, but it's it's true. Uh, So. do you think it was a fair portrayal of it? I, I, I suppose what I, what, the question I want to ask is is like, do you think it? Um, do you think it was cheap, or, or no? I think stereotypical, it was, or uh, I just thought it wasn't very well done. Mm. It did look cheap, if only because there were only two characters. Yeah, yeah. Like you know, I think she might have been flooded. Yeah, you know, her stage door would have been, there would have had hundreds of people, I'm sure, waiting there. That did seem peculiar, because the whole thing is that the film is, she's she's lost it in America, but in London, in England, people love her. Yeah. And there's there's these jokes about, well, the English are crazy. Yeah. Um, But then when she gets to London, you know, she's being mobbed and people want photos of her. You think the one place where you absolutely know she's going to be, the stage door after her show, there'll be more than two fans. Yes, and to be honest, I don't think she ever lost it in America. The thing is... She couldn't get the big stages or okay, well that's, yeah. the big gigs because she was uninsurable. You know, that's that's what... So it wasn't that she had lost her audience. No, she, yeah, it's that's that not... No impresario would, would gamble with her because yeah. she, you know, she probably wouldn't turn up, right? Right. But, <laughs> you know? she, but she, she... Those shows happened in London rather than America for a reason, you know? Yeah, yeah, was, because somebody... That's, that's, I didn't, yeah, so that's the impresario was willing to go ahead with it. Yeah. Um... Um, Where and Michael Gambon is completely wasted in that role, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, no, you see Gambon show up and you think, "Wow, fantastic!" Yeah, and he's he's really got nothing. To, I don't think I've ever seen an actor so badly used yes. or so unused. Yes, you know. I mean, Rufus Sewa isn't given much to do either. You know, it is like I suppose the Judy show, um, but you know, I think I think Renée Zellweger is great, but she still doesn't capture what makes Garland, you know, kind of magical. I mean, I'm, obviously, when people resort to words like magical, it means they're not describing things very well. But, you know, there was a book called My Judy Garland Life, which was written by Lucien Freud's daughter. I forget now what her name is. Um, you know, but she talks about this experience of her boyfriend committing suicide in Oxford and her being in a catatonic state of depression. Basically, what got her through it was just watching the Judy Garland television series, which was just concerts, yeah? Her singing, but, like, there's mm. 23 episodes of Judy Garland in concert, right, uh, That uh, for this television series that she did in the early 60s. And she talks about, you know, how, how she felt healed by it. Yeah, that kind of, she would just kind of keep, you know, obsessively re-watching these episodes and that there was something about, you know, resilience and humanity and a connection you know, in those songs and that singing of those songs that really kind of, you know, connected with her, right? And that's the effect that she had on audiences, Mm. right? That it was like kind of this healing, empowering, communicative thing about, you know, a full range of human experience, you know, uh, which included the very, she's a very humorous person, but really also the depths of despair that, you know, you could see that she'd lived through her drug addiction and so on. Yeah, I don't think the film conveys any of that. Well, I think that might be a little bit unfair. Maybe, I, I think it relies so heavily on Renee Zellweger's performance that it's all done through her. I, yes. don't, think there's any, I don't think there's any kind of... Um, 
I mean, I, I think you're right up to a point to say this. There's a very little cinematic flair, um, maybe with the one or two exceptions that I suggested in the numbers. But I mean, yeah, in terms of in terms of the film using cinematic technique to convey um, her kind of her struggles, her inner turmoil, that sort of thing. It's very light on that. It is all about her performance. Yeah, and her performance, uh, but her performance is, great. is great. And I yeah. think she does convey. She does. Things. And actually, it's a very interesting performance because she looks nothing like Judy Garland. You know, for one thing, she's like this blonde Amazon and Judy Garland was like this tiny five mm. person, right? But it's amazing how, you know, she uses... So there's, a, there's an aspect of impersonation you know, in the performance, but it's done very lightly or very subtly, you know, so all of a sudden you'll get like a crunch of a face, you know, that was a very typical kind of Judy Garland way of laughing, you know, and the whole character kind of seems to come through, you know, that moment of impersonation that then kind of gets dropped, yeah? So, you know, but but there are little things that you recognize as kind of having belonged to the historical performer, you know, um, that is impersonation, but it's kind of impersonation as a means to get through a, a you know, a, a character rather than as an end in itself. You know, and she does it very well. Uh, you know, she really uh, makes the character come alive. Um, and she's very affecting with it. And actually, I had seen Judy, uh, what's the Australian actress? Um, <clears throat> there was a television series, a miniseries of Garland. Right. Um, Judy Davis? Yes. Yeah. Judy Davis is fantastic uh, playing Garland. Um, and, and the thing about Judy Davis is, you know, she's a great actress and all, she also has that kind of transparency. And also, you know, there's a thing about Garland, which is a kineticism, an energy. She always seems like alive because mm. there's always something in her that is moving. Yeah. Mm. You know, which is also true of Judy Davis. Yeah, and which is not true of Renée Zellweger. Yeah, Renée mm. Rene Zellweger is a very placid actress. So, you know, which I think maybe makes her performance all the greater because she gets that in, right? And it's through those gestures that the, the, the performance comes alive. So, um, yeah, kudos to her. But I'm mm. very disappointed in the movie. The, um, uh, the film cut out literally two seconds before the end. Um so the film the film ends on uh, somewhere of the rainbow and um uh, actually there's a moment in somewhere of the rainbow I want to pick up on uh, which is it goes back to the uh, gay couple because they one of their things is that they've got tickets to see every show mm. that she's doing and she stops doing the show she's replaced by um company's name guitarist Lonnie Lonnie Donegan Lonnie Donegan um, and then, but she comes back. She said she just wants to see the show, but she comes back. She goes on stage. No one's expecting her, um, and she sings something. And then she sings "Summer of the Rainbow," and she breaks down in the middle of it and stops. And then the the Andy Nyman character stands up and starts singing "Summer of the Rainbow," and then uh, his p- uh, partner does, and then other people in the audience do, and everyone starts singing it. And I thought, for me, the film just got away with making that work because it is so cheesy it is and so, so cheesy. unbelievable and i thought but i didn't hear from you any any ugh, which i would have expected yeah no i think because um 
Well, I felt it, it was historically accurate, right? And it was very unusual at the time. You Did know, happen? Yeah, because, okay. you know, like, I mean, this whole idea, for example, of it having... It like such an invention. <laughs> no, the things like that did happen, very much so. Um, and it was very unusual because, you see, now those things happen, but it's very different for them to happen in a stadium, mm. right? As opposed to, like, you know, a 1,500-seat theatre or an 800-seat theatre, yeah? So, so um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't mind that. Um, and of course, it has also that kind of special resonance. I mean, you know, The Wizard of Oz is such a um, such a, a a vehicle through which entire layers of gay culture are kind of conveyed. So, for example, you know that line where you know the film. There's the whirlwind, the tornado. Mm. You know, and the house crashes and then they open the door and everything's in color. And she says, Toto, I think we're not in Kansas anymore. Mm. Right. Well, you know, kind of that was that was one of the one of those lines like the Duchess and the Bishop that could be used about everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. as, as, the, as the Duchess said to the Bishop. So, you know, you arrive at an S&M club or something. You go, oh, <laughs> I think we're not in Kansas yeah. anymore. <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> somebody, you know puts on the wrong clothes. Honey, you're not in Kansas. Yeah, like, it's, yeah. A, it's a line that lends itself to everything with a camp intonation, but also kind of, you know, as a, as a way of transversing worlds, yeah, really. Um, so I liked that the audience sang it back to her. Yeah. yeah. You know, because she was also one of those figures that was kind of like a bridge figure. I do sometimes um, resist a gay reading of Garland, right? Because the thing is, I mean, she was the Queen's favorite performer, you know, because she's that age, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, she was a box office sensation throughout the 40s, really. Um, uh, you know, one of the two, three women uh, who would often make the box the top 10 box office charts, right? Mm. Um, the films were entirely vehicles built around her, you know, so she, she she was a radio star. She was a recording star. She was as big as there was in the 1940s, which meant everybody loved Judy Garland, right? Kind of, you know, so seeing her as a kind of, you know, a gay figure or something, I think diminishes, and I use the word advisedly, kind of her significance in the culture as a whole, mm -hmm. yeah? Which is not to say that she wasn't, you know, a, a kind of a crucial figure, you know, in an account of American kind of queer histories, you know. But I think that, you know, she was also significant, like Sinatra or Bing Crosby or people like that, you know, in the culture as a whole. And those avenues are worth exploring as well as just, you know, there's something kind of... And, and actually, I think in the culture, it's used as a way of diminishing, oh, she's a gay cult figure, as if she was mm. only a gay cult figure, Right or of significance only, you know, to a particular kind of um, um, social formation. Uh, and I think, you know, performers like that, who are part of the consciousness of an entire culture, you know, for quite a long period, the way that she was, kind of, you know, what she meant and how she meant and so on, uh, is, is, is worth exploring and not just kind of, you know, a particular moment in... in, in in that trajectory. And I think um, 
<coughs> that's not something that this film does at all. So, um, so it 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 um, brings up and highlights and to some degree slightly explores um, her significance to to gay people and gay community and and it talks about her being you know, obviously fabulously popular um, in England and she has these huge crowds coming to her and that's not a crowd full of gay people that's just mm-hmm. a crowd full of people who want to see her but um, as far as her relationship with or significance to American audience and American culture goes the film has no interest in no, any of that it's it's you see her as a 14 year old at the start with Louis B. Mayer and it's all about her treatment by the industry mm. and then it's um, her 47 going to London because she doesn't have the opportunity uh, in America right now um, but it's but it's not like you know it is very clear that uh, it's because as you say she's uninsurable and mm. she's not reliable enough no one will take the risk on her no business person will but there's nothing there's nothing to say like you know I'm what a shame because audiences will still love you mm. you know there's nothing about that the American culture American audience does not exist in this film really yes um, um, I think a little bit because the opening sequences, you know, in Brentwood in California, where she's turned out of her hotel, oh, yeah. you know, and and she goes to this very mod, you know, uh, uh, party, uh, true, true, you know, with that. Liza Minnelli and so on, and but you know, but she's homeless and she doesn't have a place to live, and you know, though, yeah. Um, yeah. So so I think there is something in that, and of course. Historically, she'd just been fired from um, the Valley of the Dolls. She was meant to be in that movie, you know, and I suppose she needed the money, so she agreed to do it. But then it really was very exploitative because actually it was, you know, the character that she was playing, you know, was or the, one of the characters in the film was based on her. Yeah, I think the character of Neely, who was a drug addict and constantly taking pills and so on. So there was an element of exploitation in her casting, and she anyway, what you know, and she ended up getting fired from from that film, which really kind of put a nail in the coffin of what work she can get, really, mm. you know. So she'd burned a lot of bridges by then. Uh, so, but I think that's something that you, as a person who knows something about Garden, can bring to that film, but the film itself doesn't kind of do it for you. No. Um, uh... And what do you make of the film's um, approach to her husband's? For one thing, it only shows a couple. Um, I, I kind of... So Sid. Sid is portrayed as a kind of an ex who she's battling with. Over yeah. Things. Well, the thing is, they all stole her money. I mean, you have to imagine that this is somebody who, you know, in the 1940s, was one of the you know highest paid film stars of the period, also making money off of radio... Right. And then later on, you know, she was one of the uh, highest grossing concert performers and also recorder, recording artists of the period. You can imagine the millions and millions and millions. Right. So, you know, to end up like destitute and homeless just a few years after, mm. it's like people were robbing her left and right. Yeah. And that included the husband. So there's a there's a line there about, you know, Sid Luft, uh, you know, spending all her money on the horses. Right. Except, you know, he ended, he ended up with a house in Brentwood. She had nothing. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, and, and then Mickey, who she marries during the course of the film, uh, has all these um, sort of business ideas, but can't make any of them work. Particularly yeah. this one about this chain of 
Is it theatres or cinemas in America? Yes, yeah, I mean, it's such a stupid idea, right? <laughs> cinemas that would all be called Judy Garland and they'd give her, you know, masses of money just to show Ten, up. 10% and, of the thing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a ridiculous idea. And he's shown to be a dummy, like a good-looking dummy. Mm. My understanding is that he was gay, you know, but th- there's no indication of that in the film at all. Right. You know, and I could be wrong. Maybe he wasn't. Uh, Sid Luft also, you know, I didn't like the, the, the way the character is done. Or indeed, I mean, Rufus Sewell is always very charming. But, you know, Sid Luft was meant to be a real bruiser. Yeah, like yeah. kind of, you know, half gangster, you know. Uh, so that kind of thing doesn't come across in the performance either. No. Yeah. So. And then right at the end, you know, so we've had we've had uh, the audience joining in on Somewhere of the Rainbow, and it's you know, you, we promise you won't forget me and all the thing from the trailer, and then the film paused. Freezes. It paused. <laughs> and, and, like, yeah, and this is a digital projection, so the thing just paused for like two minutes and then went off. Yeah. And then we had all sorts of rigmarole with Cineworld stuff coming in going, we're sorry about this, we're trying to get it back on, blah, blah, blah. And then when they finally got it back on after 15 minutes, it was literally two seconds and then cut to black. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Might as well. <laughs> but, that, you know, that is, I mean, I've never seen that before. That is unfortunate and it is one of those things and it could have happened anywhere and I don't know. But it was it was annoying. Um, and then the film ends with the thing that says Judy Garland died age 47. These were These concerts were six months before her death. Um, and then it ends with a quote from the Wizard of Oz which is a heart is not judged by how much you love but by how much you are loved by others mm. which is um, I think I think the Wizard says that at the end it's a stupid quote because also it contradicts the movie you know because one of the things that um, you know the movie tries to convey is how much she loves I mean, you know, she's doing it all for her children. Her children are her reason for living. Yeah, her, her children are the ones that kind of give sense to her life. She says, you know, I know she's been fired again and so on, but she says, no, really, I, I think I'm very lucky. I have three wonderful children. You know, it's like the children are the focus and center of her life. Yeah. So, you know, the idea that, um, you know... Well, I think it's a stupid quote because, as I said to you, it's psychopathic. <coughs> the thing, the thing is, it's the wrong way around. I think a heart is judged by how much you love, regardless of what other people think of you. Where, and in this, you know, to judge a heart on how much you're loved by others, a psychopath can manipulate people into loving them. That doesn't yes. mean they've got a good heart. People loved Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we'd get around to Hitler eventually. <laughs> It did seem like a slightly... I mean, I know why the quote's in there. It's about heart and it's about love and you kind of see the relationship and obviously it speaks to her relationship with her audience and the fact that there were constantly people who loved her despite her problems. Um, but uh, it, 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 it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way because I just think it's... I think the original line, actually, now I reflect on it, is the wrong way around. Mm. But, you know. Anyway, it's characteristic of the film. Mm. You know, it's all... It's all the obvious, you know, and it doesn't kind of think things through to kind of bring other dimensions and layers and textures, you know, and complexities into the work. What did you think of the um, uh, separate, perhaps, to the camera work, but the visual aspect, kind of clothes, sets, the look of things? I thought all of that was actually wonderful. Yeah, I did. I like the clothes. The clothes evoke the clothes she was wearing in that period. Mm. Uh, um, 
very much. Uh, there's been great care taken with that. I like that they show us a bit Carnaby Street and that because mm-hmm. it actually explains some of those outfits. I think also her having been fired from uh, Valley of the Dolls meant that she kept the wardrobe that was done for her. And actually, you know, what uh, René Zellweger is wearing at the beginning of the film are films that evoke yeah, those stage costumes that were also Valley of the Dolls costumes. So I think great care has been taken with all of that. Uh, and it kind of pays off. Um, I still think, you know, there are quite poor... Uh, poor elements and choices. For example, you know, one of the things that the film wants to make you feel is that is her how alone she is. Mm. Yeah. So you know you have her coming out of the theater at night. There's many shots of her in these rainy London alleyways, looking for a phone or coming out of the stage door, right? Mm. And you know, uh, you're meant to think, oh, she's so alone, right? And actually, what you see is an overhead shot, yeah, seeing her from below in these empty streets, right? Mm. I think a more imaginative director would have taken that further, made it more operatic, brought something else to it. It's just the same static shot of her, you know, alone in, uh, on the streets, shot from above. Yeah, I th- I, uh, from mm. a middling distance, yeah, not even from a great distance, or there's no variation in the distance, right, kind of. So... I find it kind of, yeah, effective, but not that expressive. Exactly. Okay, that's a good way of putting it. So, um, I think the way you expect it to be done. I think the, the less you know about Garland, the more you might enjoy this film. I think that's probably true, as we're because <laughs> I really don't know that much about Judy Garland. And honestly, I think the only film of hers I've seen all the way through is The Wizard of Oz, uh-huh. which I love. Um, but, you know, even, um, where, I mean, where else did she do? Maybe in St. Louis? Meet Me in St. Louis, A Star is Born, The Harvey Girls, Easter Parade, yeah. uh, Me and My Gal. I mean, classic nah. after classic after classic. Well, that's what, that's what they tell me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so my familiarity, my familiarity with Judy Garland Andy is Harvey. much more as a, yeah. as, as a kind of image and, and, and as a gay icon um, and as the, the sort of... Um, the kind of easily parodied or... Uh, uh, impersonated figure that she became, mm. um, and quite cruelly so. Mm. Um, but she became in her later years. So, so none of that kind of um, rang hollow to me or anything like that because I really didn't have that knowledge to base it on. So you know, kind of I left it away with all of that 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 you might um, not have done. Um, one of the things that I was very disappointed in the film is, um, you know. She was considered the entertainer of the century, the greatest life entertainer, right, kind of, you know, and um, her, her Carnegie Hall concert is legendary, right, and, you know, I think it was a two or three album set, and, you know, it was, it, it was in the charts for years and years, right, and it's such a kind of legendary thing that Rufus Wainwright has been touring, you know, mm. the world with you know, doing the same concert that she did, you know, the uh, same set list, right? But kind of, you know, his doing it for years and years and years. I.e., you know, kind of live, she was meant to be, like, out of this world. You never get that feeling in the film that it's that kind of kinetic kind of character. And actually, the feeling that you get 
as to why the audience in London is there for her and why it's selling out is not because of what she does, but of who she is. Yes. They want to see Judy, the star. Yes. Then they're, it's, it's not suggested that they're there for the wonderful performances that she gives. Yes. They're to see a star. Yes. Um, which I think is probably um, not uh, fair. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I'm sure there was a bit of that. You oh, know, yeah. you always want to see a star. But the thing is, she did have the reputation of being, you know, the greatest or, you know, certainly amongst the greatest. But really, people would say she was the greatest live performer of her generation, you know. So that doesn't come across. So um, anything else on your mind about the film? Um, no. I mean, just again, you know, fair is fair. Kudos to Brenna Zellweger because... You know, I was telling someone, she's one of my least favorite performers, really. You know, that kind of closed-in, little tiny-eyed kind of manner thing. There's a Family Guy clip about that you should see. Uh, <laughs> it's about her being an anteater. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, she was really surprising, and I think she is truly great in this. But apart from that, the film isn't really up to that much. No, but it's not a horrific experience but, watching it. I mean, you know, I also kind of mainly enjoyed it. Um, but you know, I don't think, I don't think it's a very good movie. I think people will enjoy it a lot. Yeah. yeah? Uh, and I think René Zellweger is great. I teared up at the end. Did you? I did a little bit. In Somewhere of the Rainbow. Yeah, I kind of. I thought it was wonderful. Um, yeah. And actually, and actually pretty much from the moment that she's in the phone booth on the, on the phone to her daughter and basically having to kind of give her kids away. Yes. Um, which I thought, I mean. That really got me, and that's and you know they're not even they're not in the same scene. It's her in a phone box, kids, yes. kids in America. I thought that was she's great. That was a real. That was emotionally sort of wrenching. Yes, um, okay. and then and then from there, pretty much straight into uh, uh, the song the song at the end, and then of course the film had to just stop the way it did, and yes. it really, I mean, it was unfortunate, but. God, it really killed the end of the film, that, unfortunately. It did, yeah, yeah. it did. But that's um, not the film's fault. Yeah. Anyway. So, um... I kind of guardedly recommend it. I think it's got an incredible performance. Yes. Actually, I think in that sense, one mustn't guardedly recommend it. You know, I'm sure René Zellweger will come up for Oscars, and so, you know, this film, for, you know, people who are interested in that kind of thing, you know, it will become a must-see film because she truly is so great in it you know, in spite of the film not quite being worthy of the performance. Yeah, I think that's fair. Thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on... iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Uh, on social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, at eavesdropmovies. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>